Thank you for tuning in to episode 18 of Adversity University, and welcome to class. What's up, guys? This is Garrett. We just finished episode 18 with Justin Armour. Uh, great episode. He's a product of Manitou Springs, which is about 15 minutes away from me and Sean here in Colorado Springs. Sean was talking to his chiropractor about uh, our our podcast and what the, the big spiel was, and he said that Justin would be a great example and a person to interview. I guess they grew up together and went to high school together. We had reached out via email to his restaurant. Uh, luck, luckily got, got a reply. We did the interview down there today in person. What a great guy and a great interview. I was very uh, happy that, you know, a guy that had won a Super Bowl in the NFL, and it, it goes along with everybody that we've inter- interviewed. Everyone's so down to earth and so humble, but through everything that he's gone through, he didn't have one bad thing to say about the bad things that he went through in his life. He always found a way to take away a lesson from it and use it to better himself and even the kids that he teaches or his own children as well. Sean, what did you think about Justin? I agree. The big takeaway for me today was perspective. You look at it, we get into his interview at 29 years old, he was set. Super Bowl champion, had a lot of money, obviously, from his career and his hard work he had put in. And the way he looks at the circumstances he had to face are really admirable. And he's really happy with his life because he focuses on the right things. He could be really upset that people have done wrong to him. And he could be really upset that people in his family are no longer with him. But he's not. He focuses on what he can't control and just really making sure that his relationships are a focus in his life because he told us that when his restaurant was about to flood, he sent a group message to the guys that he hangs out with every Monday night. And within five minutes, you know, six of them were already at the restaurant helping him throw sandbags up to stop all the water. So relationships are very important in life and the perspective he's had is what keeps him able to focus on those relationships. They keep a priority because he's not a woe is me guy. He's an, all right, here's the circumstances. What can I do to get myself in a better place? It wasn't verbatim, but I think a lot of what he said went around the topic of God has a plan and to trust the process. And he really has. Like I mentioned earlier, everything he's gone through, he always brought it back to, this is what God wanted for me. And um, he didn't think that I needed what I had or he was teaching me a lesson there. So a very religious guy and very honorable and humble guy. And we were really happy to do the interview with him. And I'm sure you guys are going to like it just as much as we did. Let's kick it on over to Justin Armour. The Colorado Rampage are excited to announce a player development partnership with Power Edge Pro Hockey. PEP's reactive countering training concept is the type of innovative skill development that will greatly impact our organization. Developing players to the next level is the Colorado Rampage's number one priority, and incorporating PEP hockey into our training will help us get there. Visit their website at corampage.com. That's C-O-R-A-M-P-A-G-E.com. Be better today than you were yesterday and join the herd. Today's guest was a dual athlete growing up. He won a state track and field championship in the spring of 1990 and a football state championship in the fall of 1990. As a junior in college, he was selected as all Pac-10 second team and as a senior, he ranked ninth in the nation in receptions. He set a Stanford career record with 2,482 yards receiving, academically at a 4.0 GPA in college, and was the valedictorian. 
Next, he was drafted in the 1995 NFL Draft by the Buffalo Bills and highlighted his NFL career with a Super Bowl 33 victory as part of the Denver Broncos. Welcome to Adverse University, Justin Armour. Thank you. That's weird to hear all of your <laughs> stuff laid out before you, but thanks. Yeah. That's a nice intro. We're uh, excited to have you on. Mm -hmm. What was it like growing up here in Manitou Springs, and how did you get started in football? Growing up here in the 80s, man, I actually lived right up the street. There was, uh, frankly, all the same buildings you see here now, but we kind of grew up outside, uh, pumping our legs on bicycles up and down these hills. Um, I remember being a lot freer than it was, you know, than my kids do. We, you know, we tend to take our kids everywhere nowadays. Back then, we were on foot. Um, we played about every game you could think of on the neighborhood. Um, you didn't go home and complain unless you were bleeding. Usually, <laughs> it was pretty, pretty awesome. I think I learned to play sports uh, in the neighborhood against older kids. But it was kind of an idyllic childhood, to be honest. Um, Manitou's very secluded. It's very beautiful. Uh, you tend to know a lot of the families here. A lot of people are, you know, supporting you. So from that regard, it was awesome. But it was also, um, you know, small perspective, small little mountain town in Colorado. It wasn't until I was able to leave here and go back that I realized, you know, kind of how sacred it was. That's kind of why I came back. So. Yeah, really cool. I've noticed that too, just going away to play junior hockey. I went to Texas, you went to Wisconsin, and then we both played college yeah. in Pennsylvania. There's nothing like coming back to Colorado yeah. Springs. It's gorgeous here. Nothing quite like the, what you see and just the, obviously the climate is incredible. Too, yeah. So. No, it's beautiful here. And that's obviously why we come back to train. He lives here, but just a great place to be. So you grew up uh, in Manitou. You played your high school here in Manitou Springs. Mm -hmm. uh, then you decided to further your education and playing career at Stanford University. What was the recruiting process like for you and why did you pick Stanford? Well, um, you know, I was a, uh, I was a pretty big kid early on. My dad got me involved in a lot of uh, national level basketball you know, well before I was in high school. So when I showed up to try out as a freshman, um, I was as good if not better than <laughs> most anyone. I'd already been dunked on by Chris Weber and a few people you know, in seventh and eighth grade. So I was kind of used to uh, pretty high level hoops at least. Um, when I got into high school in Manitou, we were really a powerhouse back then. When I was a freshman, we won the state championship in football against Fountain Fort Carson, believe it or not, which is now a 5A school. Yeah. Um, as a freshman, we didn't lose a game in football. Um, and not one of us, including myself, even suited up for varsity back in 1987. We fast forward today, if, I mean, if you're over six feet tall and weigh 120 pounds, you're playing varsity yeah. football from the get-go. So it was different. You know, we'd have 65 guys out. And um, I think there was a lot less to do back then. I think that in general, young people were way more committed to the weight room and things like that because it was something to do away from home. Um, you know, your experience growing up was just way different. I felt like we were way more uh, into things like that. We competed more outside of school, just around the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, it was, a, it was a fun place to go to high school at that time. We were really well known in uh, girls volleyball, football, good in basketball we were good in a lot of sports so it made it made an exciting thing a school to be at if you were someone that loved sports which I did I always had I'd always been competitive as a little kid and always wanted to play a game or you know go out and throw so it was just something that was in my in my DNA kind of um, but Manitou was a fun place to play 
my high school basketball coach uh, coached my son for wow. the final season of his 32-year career. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, that was kind of cool. And now he's coached by uh, my coach's son, who's now oh. the coach at Manitou. Um, so there's a lot of cool synergy like that with Manitou. It's just a nice place to raise family, and that's kind of why we're back here now. Yeah. How did you end up playing football? It sounds like you were very serious about basketball early on. I was. I kind of got reluctantly pulled into football. I really had not that much interest in it. I didn't like the physicality of it necessarily, even though I was kind of a brutish basketball player. Um, but I could tell early in my sophomore year, you know, the coach said, you know, we want you to – I had a pretty good freshman campaign on our freshman team. So they kind of stuck me in the starting lineup pretty early, and I was really reluctant. They kind of talked me into it. I was scared primarily. <laughs> Everyone back then lifted weights. I mean, we had five 300-pound bench pressers on our team back then. Wow. I don't think there's a kid in the high school that's been 300 pounds in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, guys, I don't know, it was a little bigger and faster. Um, but the coach knew I was pretty big and fast, and he kind of forced me into a game early on. I had some success early, and, you know, um, I always kind of liked, started to enjoy football more. Uh, the older I got, the more I realized I was I wasn't that special as a basketball player. You know, I was like a six-five center. <laughs> I always played inside. I never really faced the basket, so I didn't really have very good handles. But I was tough. You know, I could go in and battle and play good defense. Um, but you know, at the college level, when I got there, they thought I was a you know a one, two, or three. You know, and I'm like, I'm really actually an inside player. And they're like, no, you're not. You're <laughs> pretty short and stubby. So. Um, I don't know, I just kind of loved competing, and when I was a sophomore, um, or when I got to Sanford, they moved me from quarterback to receiver right away, because a lot of receivers got hurt, and I could tell I was athletic, so they just kind of rammed me in there. And again, I didn't really think much about it. It wasn't that I was not going to be a QB anymore, I didn't really care, I just really wanted to play. Yeah. I just wanted to play on the field, be in the game, I mean, I never really was focused on a position or anything. So. You know, uh, the, the team I played for at Stanford, my second year, Bill Walsh came in there, one of the most legendary coaches of all time, put me at a position that really was highlighted in his offense because I could learn a lot and absorb a lot, and he liked to run a lot of different you know, formations and whatnot. Uh, guys were faster than me, but he liked me in there because I wouldn't drop the ball and I didn't make mistakes. You know, I was always in the right spot. I might not have gotten open as much, but... Um, and then I had success there. So by the time my junior year started, I was pretty tired from playing both. And I said, I'm just going to, I thought I had more opportunity in football. So that's kind of when I left basketball. But I always loved basketball more, yeah, for sure. You talked about getting moved from quarterback to wide receiver. And then prior to your senior year at Stanford, they actually tried to move you to tight end because yeah. of that speed you talked about. Yep. What was it like playing on the line in spring ball? And how did you take your career into your own hands to get back where you wanted to be? Well, what happened was they, you know, Walsh thought I was a really marketable pro player, but he thought I was more of a tight end, kind of a possession tight end, because, you know, I was big. I was huge and good with my body, but I wasn't overly sized, you know, I wasn't super fast. Um, but honestly, I didn't like it in there. I spent a whole spring ball on the line of scrimmage, and it's two different games. It's, you know, I was a basketball player. I like being out in the open field, boxing guys out, going for balls, being a part of the offense. Um, I was just getting my butt kicked, basically, on the line of scrimmage. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, you know, I was definitely a yes-sir coach type kid, and I suited up and did the best I can, but I secretly didn't want to play it. 
fortunately, a lot of the guys that they wanted to step up and play receiver didn't have a great spring ball. So as soon as it ended, I went and found the track coach at Stanford. And I asked him if I could start training with him, but I needed to improve my speed. And he said, sure. So I showed up every day from then to the end of school and worked out with him all summer. And when I came back into training camp, and I went in and told Walsh, I said, I've been working on you know this all summer, and I don't really want to play tight end. So I'd rather try out a receiver and not play than you know, force me into tight end. I couldn't gain weight at the time. He's like, fair enough. So I went out and won the job again. Uh, you know, I'd already started for two years that position, but I had my best season. And I felt like uh, I changed his opinion on that, which was, was something that I always thought was pretty cool. You know, and then he believed I could play and help me get drafted. You know, when I didn't play, play receiver. Yeah, it's pretty special. Obviously, a lot of people are willing to help out. Like you said, you went to your track coach, and yeah. he put in some extra time to help you out. And I'm sure your football coach respected you more knowing that you didn't just whine and complain and say, no, I want to play receiver. You gave yeah. it your best to what he wanted, and then you went out and improved. You, like, yeah. forced Basically, him to let like, me play receiver. All right, well, I hear what you're saying, and I respected it, but tried to change it. And um, But, yeah, I think, yeah, the longer you do anything, if you can make the people that you're working with or that are around you or that coach you or that are in charge of you at a job, if they – respect the way you approach what you know you're trying to do then you anyone can be successful in my opinion yeah. uh, but you have to rely on the people around you that um, whose opinion matters you know you got to work to impress them on a daily basis it's not just you know I don't think anyone just finishes where they're at you can always change people's opinions yeah yourself you said you had your best season yet after uh, going and working with your track coach, and obviously a lot of that probably attributed to the speed that you gathered over that summer. Yeah. But do you think a lot of it had to do with confidence too? You were more confident in your ability and your speed. Yeah, I think so. absolutely. Um, I had a couple games against some defensive backs that were quote perennial type players and kind of thumped them a little bit. And it was during my junior season after where I came out of that with I thought, man. I think I can play in the NFL. Like a lot of people are telling me, they think I can too. I really hadn't thought of that maybe prior to that season. You know, like my freshman, sophomore year, I just, I don't know, I was just doing, working as hard as I could, but I really just thought I was getting a good education and would parlay some relationship into some job I didn't know I didn't want. You know, at the time. <laughs> um, that, that environment there, you know, was it worked out well for me. Yeah, I had a good senior year, and then when I got drafted uh, to Buffalo, you know, um, I think a lot of that had to do with Bill Walsh's opinion of me, to be honest, because he had a, he was still considered one of the most important people in, in football at the time, and, uh, you know, he vouched for me, so, and I think that was because of he had three years as my coach, and he knew what my work ethic was, I think that's mostly what he vouched for. You just touched on it uh, briefly, but obviously Stanford's known very well for their academics. Uh, can you briefly touch on the importance of school? While at Stanford, you had a 4.0, as we mentioned earlier, class valedictorian, editor of the school newspaper, a Bible scholar, and you're also <laughs> part of the National Honor Society, French math and science clubs. Well, that sounds impressive. Uh, I didn't have a 4.0 at Stanford. I had one in high school. Okay. Uh, but I did pretty well at 
in college. Um, you know, I, I've been working with kids a long time, high school kids, middle school kids. Mm-hmm. I've coached them. I've worked at a school in San Diego. I've always been around them. My advice has never really changed for anyone. And I, I feel like if you, if you show up every day at something, whether it's school or practice or work or whatever, and you really pretty much try, you know, as hard as you can without being ridiculous, but, you know, listen to this, what they're saying, do the assignment they ask. I don't know. I don't think school's that hard. I think most people make things hard because they just make excuses why they don't want to do the work involved. But if you just do the work, do it as well as you can, anyone can succeed at school. I don't even think I was that smart. Most of my friends and family would testify to that now. I mean, I just <laughs> paid attention, and they said the assignment was due on Tuesday. Hand in the assignment. Yeah. Even if you're not finished or it's not great or just do that. I mean, all the years I've been in school, the only kids that struggle in school are the ones that just try to do their own thing. It's like, just do it. Do it. It's, it's, it's more about learning to do tasks and think critically than it is the actual assignment. I'm always telling my kids that. I don't really care if you know the quadratic formula. I just want to see if you can, like, think logically and literally and, like, get to a, an answer. It's, so, you know, I think a lot of people make that whole process harder than it should be. And a lot of people go to school that probably shouldn't go to school because they don't know why they're there. Yeah. You know, you should go and you're there to learn. So apply yourself and work hard and you'll do you'll do really well. You don't have to be a genius. Yeah. There's so. something that I always preach when we coach camps is the importance of academics because I'm yeah. not sure if it's the same for football, but in hockey, you're only allowed a certain amount of scholarship money sure. athletically. Yeah. So if you have good enough grades to get an academic scholarship and your sports team can just, you know, finish that off to get you a full ride, they only have to use half of a scholarship. So they still have half left for someone else. And it opens the door to like Ivy Leagues and Stanford's and They'll Harvard's choose you over another guy that doesn't have it. Yeah. We always call it slam dunk, you know, slam dunk recruits. Because like if you, you handle your job there, the rest is, that's why they call it extracurricular activity, you know. A lot of kids think that all they have to do is sports. Well, maybe if you're in that top 1% athlete, you know, that one percent freak of nature that it's going to get you know first round pick right out of your freshman year. Yeah, you probably don't have to go to history class, right? <laughs> if you're like the rest of us, you know, you do. You got to work at it. I don't know if it went into, into your decision to go to Stanford, but uh, looking back now, I really wish that I would have taken high school a lot more seriously than I did. Yeah. Like you said in college, I think it's just showing up and doing the work that you're told to do. And I felt that I've applied myself more in college than I did in high school. Yeah. But for all those younger kids, like if you have the opportunity to go to Harvard or Stanford or Yale yeah. versus some of these other schools, like you said, if you're not a one percenter, there's life after professional sports, whether you play for 10 yeah. years or one. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing. So if you can set yourself up, if you can say you graduate from Harvard or Stanford. I feel like that's going to go a pretty long way. So if Particularly you, set when you know up, a lot of the people in the community around your sport. I mean, I can honestly say that every single relationship in my life at this point, at almost 50 years old, that's paid off. That's basically, I met through my involvement in sports. I mean, from being a, a coach that you knew, or people you played with, or just your reputation as an athlete. Um, you know, people realize how much hard work goes into something like that, and it speaks for you before you walk in the door. Um, but, you know, you're absolutely right. If you can. If you can enjoy an athletic career, maybe it doesn't look professional. I mean, I always tell my kids, look, you're training all the time. You're, you're building your body. Your body stops growing at 25. So if 
you work out hard all those years before, I mean, you get a bigger foundation than most people that don't do anything. You're pushing your organs, all of it. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's, I just like that they're involved in stuff. It's kind of why I make them play, and now they've, you know, they enjoy it too. You know, the, the love of competing is, goes a long way. Yeah, absolutely. So, in your professional football career, you are a Super Bowl champion with the hometown Broncos. In hockey, the playoff series are best four out of seven, so yeah. you almost have a second chance. How do you deal with the pressure of single-game eliminations in the playoffs, and what's the preparation like week to week? I would say the, the, the playoffs in football kind of represent your entire career, and that it can end in any day. Yeah. <laughs> you can show up in your locker room one day, and you know, be a note that says, come see coach whoever. It's usually a bad note. Yeah. Um, the collective bargaining agreement, the way it is in football, is you, know, you negotiate up front signing bonuses. And that's really the only thing you're guaranteed in your contract. You could be cut shortly after that. Um, so there was always that fear. I was never, um, you know, I was kind of a meat and potatoes player. I wasn't certainly a, a high-paid starter or something like that. So I was always kind of on that, that bubble area where, you know, every day was a tryout. Every practice was a trial. You, you weren't really allowed to take days off, you know. When you're really sore in camp and the coach is on your way to breakfast and he says, Howie, hey, Armour, how you doing? You know, the answer is, I'm doing good. Yeah. I'm away from practice. Yeah. Even though the real answer might be, I can't feel my Achilles tendons and my <laughs> hamstrings are going to snap and I really just want to cry and go back to my room. <laughs> That's really what you think. But you, it's, it's just a, it's like an interview every day, you know, and, and football is really life or death. I mean, it's, it's win or lose. I mean, that's why you only have 16 games. It's too violent. There isn't this prolonged thing. Everything's, you know, geared towards that. I think in the pressure of it's intense. I know on the last day when I, I realized I was signing my severance and saying I was going to move on. I mean, I'd be lying, but it's, it's, I felt a tremendous amount of relief that I didn't have to go and compete one-on-one against another really good athlete every day, all, you know, two hours a day. Yeah. Every day of your life. Or compete with yourself on a workout on a Saturday morning, you know, when you're running hills and you want to quit. You know, no one's looking and you're like, am I doing this for, what point am I doing this for, you know? All those tests that you had to put yourself through on a regular basis to be, you know, an athlete like that, it was, when you're done finally, it is a relief. What you realize then is after a while, your your personality reboots and you just start focusing on something else. It may not be one-on-one competition, but now you have have a baby. That. Right. <laughs> so you kind of take the same intensity to whatever you're doing, but football is, you know, that's why people don't play for air. It's pretty intense. Right. So, specifically to the Super Bowl, you have that two week gap rather than the normal one week gap. Yeah. Is the intensity really ramped up, or have what you've been doing so far, it's been working? Why change it, you know? I would say more B. Okay. I think at that point, you're so surprised you're there as a group, you know, yeah. that. You just kind of keep doing what the coaches are preparing for you and you try to stay physically ready and just go compete, you know, um, that late into a season. And I was fortunate enough to be on the Broncos the year after they won that first Super Bowl with Elway against Green Bay in San Diego. You guys might not have been born yet. Um, so I joined the team that following year and I was on a lot of teams, but almost from the very beginning of that season, I would think to myself, like, we're really good. Like, <laughs> we're going to meet most people. Yeah. And we didn't lose a game until 
fourteenth week when they sat all the starters because we already had a first round bye in the playoffs and I got to start. We nice. lost against the Jets. So That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Took over McCaffrey's spot. But I mean, they were it was in the playoffs. Um, but my point is, it was uh, you know it's just a it's a good game. Football's a good game because it's it requires a lot of you know intensity. I think sports are in general. Me and Sean talk about all the time how, I mean, we obviously love the game of hockey and it's been so good to us, but it's just the life lessons that you learn, the, me yeah. the memories that you create with your teammates and your friends that'll last a lifetime. And we're yeah, so the grateful for you get sport. to go yeah. and the people you've met. And in my experience, like I'm, now that I have a restaurant, I hire a lot of kids in the summer. I mean, almost 100% hire kids that play sports. <laughs> yeah. They're just. They're better at taking instruction. They're better at taking a little criticism. They don't really get super sensitive. They either work hard. They're not used to, you know, used to being on a team thing. They're just, you know, they're hustlers. Yeah. You know, athletes are hustlers. Um, and I don't know, you know, at least the world I grew up in, hustling was a, a tremendous value. Nowadays, it's probably not as great a value, but yeah, you, know, you can hustle online now. You talk about hustling and the work ethic, and you played with some tremendous players, you know, yeah. John Elway. Uh, what are some of the things that they did to really stand out above the rest? A couple of people stood out to me probably more than most. I would say Bill Romanowski. Um, he was a kind of a controversial linebacker figure, but played 16 years outside linebacker without missing a game. He had that incident where he spit on a player and became a big to-do, but... Um, in my opinion, working with a guy like him or an Ed McCaffrey, these guys were real pros, the way they approached what they did. Um, it was the first time I witnessed like a professional football player. I'd always been a football player since I was a little kid. Like, it was just something you did. You didn't really define yourself as a football, you know. Watching those guys and the way they went about their business was a whole new level. Um, particularly with Bill, and he wanted every guy on the team to be excellent. He would hire trainers and nutritionists and he would pay for them to service the team, you know, and we could use them to our disposal. But And then the way that they would prepare for a contest and how they would know every detail about who they were playing and the, the guy guarding them, the guy they'd be working with, they'd know all of their, you know, go-to moves that they would use early on in the game and then the moves they'd use when they were tired. I'd never seen anyone prepare for one game quite like that. And when I saw that, I knew I was seeing, that's why these guys are great. This, that's why he's a Hall of Famer. That's why... Ed McCaffrey was that way. Um, just the way they approached the day-to-day -day grind of it, um, it was no more, hey, we're football players. It was, I'm a football player. I have a family. This is my livelihood, and I'm going to take this as serious as a guy takes his, any job, you know? Um, and I think that was a really impressive thing to see. I'd say the guys that I played with that were most impressive, they brought that kind of work ethic and energy, and then they brought everyone along with them. Uh, and that Broncos team had, like, that year in 1998, we had like 10 or 15 guys that way. You had Elway, you had Shannon Sharp, you had Terrell Davis. And you go on the other side, we were, had Steve Atwater and Bill Romanowski and Ed McCaffrey and Rod Smith were the two whiteouts. And it was just like, even the, the center, these, they just didn't make mistakes. Like I've never been in a practice situation where the starters did not make mistakes. Like in terms of, they're never off sides, they're never in the wrong, filling lane when they were blocking. They were never running the wrong route. There was none of that. It was perfection. And when you saw that happening, you realized the biggest difference was the way that they prepared for it on a daily basis. You know, 
that was the big. I played on other teams with really good players, but I never. I really witnessed professionalism that year in Denver with some of those guys. They were, they were impressive. It was a fun team to be a part of. Switching notes a little bit. Sometimes family burdens become our own. Your brother had to go to rehab because of a drug addiction. Can you briefly touch on that, how this affected you and how you maybe use it as a learning lesson that an, an excessive amount of drugs or alcohol can lead to a dark road? Yeah, it was mostly my childhood. You know, he um, was a very bright kid. Uh, he was three years older than me. And my parents split up when I was about eight. So he would have been about 11. Entering middle school and he was always kind of a charismatic leader type kid and he kind of got involved with some guys that you know, he told me many years later um, that they just split a beer out of one dad's refrigerator at <laughs> a sleepover. Yeah. It seems pretty harmless, you know, I always tell kids the story. And, you know, a couple weeks later, then they each took a beer. And, you know, before long, he was going to parties as a freshman and was really into that crowd and finally relaxing, you know, and feeling, uh, you know, obviously good. Uh, but for him and his personality and the choices he made subsequent to that and always trying to fill that, it took him down a really dark road. Um, I've seen a lot of kids in high school go to a couple parties here and there, and you get drunk a couple times, and it doesn't even really affect them. And I mean, they go into college, and maybe they do a couple more times, and then they go on to have careers. And I mean, I played with a lot of guys at Stanford that way. That was just very casual. My experience growing up was the opposite of that. I only saw one side of it. You know, I just saw a kid who went from being just a very normal kid in sports, good in school, to dropping out, shaving his head, you know, and running away for <laughs> three years. Wow. You know, and basically running through all of his resources. So I just kind of saw this very extreme use of, of drugs and alcohol, and it, it shaped the way I grew up big time. You know, it had a lot to do with why I left high school with such a pretty good record, good grades. I was really involved in a lot of stuff because I really didn't want to be at home. That's kind of the underlying thing. A lot of people, you know, I would go to another, you know, I was in drama, go to the school plates where I practiced from seven to nine, and I would just get out of the house and go do stuff like that. So I ended up involved with a lot of stuff because I was trying to avoid, you know, being around my, the situation that involved my, my brother who was severely addicted to drugs and alcohol. So he got clean for a long time, went back to school, actually graduated from CSU uh, Fort Collins in microbiology. Wow. He was on his way to medical school and started hanging out with some of his old friends. And uh, he died when he was 26. He relapsed uh, after five years sober. So, yeah, we kind of had to deal with that. You know, that was my second year in the NFL. I just had a really bad foot injury uh, that put me on IR that year. So it was a pretty challenging time in my life you know, to figure out what I was going to do or what was important moving forward. Um, but, you know, in that time, like now, it usually came down to some really good relationships I had in my life that pretty much gave me a hug and got me doing other stuff. That's when I learned to surf. Um, that's when I learned to play beach volleyball because I moved back out to San Diego in my off seasons and tried to get distracted with good activities and uh, it worked. For a while, I have to deal with it for. But um, I wish she was here now. I wish she knew my three kids, and wish she was part of our lives still. So we have to live with that every day. Um, but um, you know, I know a lot of people 
struggled with that with family members that have um, you know, torn their families apart too. So I, it's part of the fabric. Some some ways it brought us all closer too. Um, and my my brother's three and a half years older than I am. He actually lives down in uh, Vegas right now. He's in kind of like a sober living type of thing. Um, he's yeah. just over a year sober. He had been sober before and kind of relapsed. He, uh, likes his alcohol and um, yeah. he can't just really have one beer if he has one he has to have multiple mm -hmm. uh, but he's been here for or he's been sober for just over a year now and is uh, living down there he's actually uh, an executive chef at like the second best restaurant in Vegas so That's he's doing awesome. very well and yeah so he's on a, a good path right now but kind of in a similar situation as you I grew up with my brother obviously being older than me and kind of yeah. led a life that I wasn't very interested in so I kind of used his example to yeah go a different direction and not to say that I don't, you know, have a few casual beers, but I know when, you know, say enough yeah. is enough. And, um, I know that alcoholism kind of runs in my family. My mom's father died from alcoholism, her stepdad, and my brother obviously suffers from it too. So yeah. I can kind of see the dark side of it. So it's kind of been a good experience that I haven't had to go through myself to learn from them. But yeah. Yeah. It's in your face like that. It's, it, it changes how you think and who you are during that time. If it's really bad and chaotic, you're like, well, I don't want that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think it's human nature in those times to almost kind of go into a shell and I need yeah. to deal with this. But you talked about using your support group, people giving you hugs. And um, something else we've talked about is finding those outlets. Like yeah. one of the coaches that we interviewed, Mark Sample, went through a tough time and he said getting on a sheet of ice was his yeah. therapy. And you talked about, you know, getting into surfing and finding ways to, you know, almost just distract yourself and make yeah, you realize you, that the world's okay. The longer you're alive, you're, people you love are going to experience really horrible things and you can choose to take on those burdens as your own or you can let, or you don't have to. I learned that. You don't, you don't, you know, my brother's problems didn't have to be mine. And that was, uh, that was pretty reassuring once I learned that, you know, that it was okay to be relieved even that he was gone. It's been like a, pain in our ass for like a long time. I remember feeling relief, like, ah, he's just in heaven now, it'll be nice. He's struggling on this earth. Every every year seems harder than the one before, you know? Yeah. You just feel relieved too, not only for yourself, but that he, he doesn't have to struggle yeah, with it. struggling and too. suffering and being humiliated. And, yeah. yeah, it was, uh, but you know, it's something that never leaves you either. And I tell my I describe them to my kids, you know, and they listen for about a minute, and then you know you're describing someone they've never met, so they don't know how to they don't know how to miss your brother, you know. They yeah. don't. They, <laughs> they never knew him, but um, and through that, I've met a lot of people, you know, I've been drawn to a lot of people that have faced similar tragedies in their lives, and unfortunately, it's just something we all deal with. Almost none of us are untouched by that. You're also a man of faith and religion. How has religion helped you get through tough times or even kept you humble at some of your best times? Perspective. I think, um, you know, especially nowadays, to me, the, <laughs> the lens that you look through the world, it has a lot to do with whether you believe in God or not, you know? And for me, I don't think I'm a mistake. I don't think my kids are mistakes. I mean, we all have very individual personalities. You know, I always explain that to my kids, how special that is that there's no one else like you. 
people that look like you a little bit or maybe sound like you, but like nobody has your personality or your soul. And that's a hard thing to get your head around when you're a, you know, a young person. Yeah. And it changed my life. It made me believe that God really individually loves us. I understood that for the first time. Yes. And then at the same time, you got me billions of people have been here. At the same time that you're magnificently created and you have a purpose, you're really still not that small. Unique. Yeah. You are unique, but you're not. Like, yeah. It's not about you. And I think, and that's what keeps you humble also, that um, I don't think that this is all there is to life. I think that there's, uh, there's more when we're done. So I think of how we treat people says a lot about who we are and what we think, you know? Um, and that's never been more critical than today. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to digest some of the current events going on um, up against what I believe is a Christian man, you know? I think uh, there's a lot of confusion, and it, you know, it's making a lot of people angry and a lot of division. And I, I wish everyone saw everyone the way that God sees us all. I think that would be the, the easiest way for us all to find common ground. You know, if we, if we knew we were all individual, we're made for a purpose, and we're you know, meant to... I think the, the plan was that we would love each other, but, you know, right now, it's not, it's not always what happens, you know, it's an ugly place. Unfortunately, I think some of the biggest lessons you have to learn are from the hard times, so yeah. I'm hoping just right now that times are really tough for a lot of people, and it, like you said, hopefully this is what it takes to maybe bring us together. Yeah, or find something that you're new and excited about that like you guys have done. You, know, you can only sit around so long in a yeah. lockdown before you're like, what can we do? Right. You gotta be able to do something. I mean, <laughs> we're kind of, you know, the same way. We, well, my kids started, we started working on our verticals. Because they both play basketball and my daughter plays volleyball. So we bought a vertical system, started working out every day, you know, just whatever it is, you know, people are in a, we're in a weird place right now. Everything that they've gotten used to is now pulled out from underneath them. Yeah. And now with the complete remove of the Chassa athletic schedule, I don't know if you saw that, but they basically just took away all the fall sports and tried to cram them into the spring. Wow. That's going to be tough. You know, so you got, my kids are perfect examples. They're just average kids, you know, they kind of like school, but they, you know, like their friends, but they, they love sports, you know. They look forward to probably most when they're at school is practice after school, you know, and just see all that taken away from them. It's just it's tough. Yeah. So it's just a challenge, you know. But everyone's in the same one right now, so I'm sure what the future holds with that. One more challenge you had to go through. You unfortunately lost a majority of your career earnings at the hand of a crooked man running a Ponzi scheme. He claimed to be helping you invest for the future when really he was using your money to fund his own lifestyle. You had been retired four years and were living remotely in Baja with your family when you discovered the loss. How did you react to the news initially and what has the process been like since then? Yeah, it was pretty devastating. Um, I had trusted an investor who had grown up next to my high school or my college quarterback. And uh, he had as well. I had his family and approximately 6,500 other investors. 6,500. Yeah, it was a very large fund. I, I got in the 11th year, but... I was young, I was uh, not really thorough, and you know, definitely the stage of your life where you take people for granted, you know, you listen to what they say, and you know, my best friend, you've known him your whole, oh yeah, you know, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, 
it's funny now when I think back the way I jumped in so quickly, but I got an email and I went down, I went back to, told my wife, you know, that uh, basically our investment vehicle that allowed us to live where we were living, um, you know, was been closed down by the SEC. They come in and secured everything. So what unfolded over the next couple of months was pretty intense. You know, we essentially left uh, where we were in Mexico. We were developing a few properties and we basically walked away from that project and went back to San Diego where we knew a lot of people and had a lot of friends and so I could get a job. So I mean, I went from thinking I was fairly retired. I saved every dollar the NFL gave me for five years and unfortunately gave the majority of it to a crook. So it was pretty humbling. I'd only been married a short time. Um, I think my wife's response that day was probably the reason we're so happily married today. Because she just kind of shrugged it off and was like, oh well, like, what do we do next? You know, trying to <laughs> figure out how to move she on. She didn't freak out or yeah, yeah, like, um, so I don't know. I think back to that time and I think maybe it was, I don't think anything happened. You know, it was intentionally done to me. I think I made a bad decision, but like you said, you know, when you go through something like that, that's where you really bear fruit in your life. And it, you know, it was good for me. I was only 29 and I thought I had enough money to retire on. So you know, maybe that wasn't what God wanted for me. Right. He didn't want my point of view to get that soft. Maybe he wanted me to keep working hard. I think of what I've, what's happened since then and the relationships we've met, made and journey we've been on and now the business we're enjoying and, and I can look back and honestly say that yeah it probably was a good thing so it took me a while to think that <laughs> um, maybe I'd be more mature anyway had it not happened but um, yeah it was it was it was devastating you know and in a lot of respects it was more difficult than finding out you know your brother who had struggled his whole life was finally met his maker I mean, it was kind of just so sudden and something you, you know, I prided myself on the fact that I saved all my money and had invested it wisely. That was my big crown I was wearing around. Come to find out, not only had I not invested wisely, but frankly, very ignorantly. So, you know, these windows into your personality are good when they happen. You know, it changes you forever. Certainly, I've never invested in anything again. <laughs> <laughs> You know, looking into it and finding out more about what it is and who's involved with it. So, painful lesson, but, um, you know, just kind of go back to work. So, I really did. Um, went back to work and got involved in the restaurant business out in San Diego and we moved here. Knew that's what we wanted to do. So, again, met, started with a good team of people and, and went for it. But, you know, I think the underlying thing and all that is just, you just got to work at it not get discouraged you know what was it like opening up your own business um challenging a lot of moving parts in a restaurant you know uh, we have an old building here so started with all that trying to get that compatible and fixed and um but at the end of the day you know selling margaritas and tacos it's not like <laughs> <laughs> it's not life or death i'm not handing out subpoenas you know or anything real that people don't like Right, you know, right. Every now and then you get some gal in here that doesn't like the date she's on, so she'll give you a one-star review, but <laughs> we can live with that. You know? um, 
it's fun. You know, all my, my children work here. All of their friends work here. All of my friends' wives work here, or they work here. I mean, it's kind of that kind of deal. You know, on the weekends, half the place will know each other. So, if anything, we enjoy the fact that we've created something that our neighbors love and use a lot and consider it their kind of local hangout spot. Yeah. So that has a, that's cool. We're closed on Mondays. There's a small group of my friends from high school that uh, usually come in here on Monday nights and have a few beers and watch whatever game is on on the TVs. You know, it's awesome. closed. We call it Mantina night. Mantina It's famous. Yeah. <laughs> I was in Mexico recently while my property was flooding and all I had to do was send out a text on the Mantina thread and I had about six guys at my property with sandbags, you know, wow. fixing the issue in, in about five minutes. So it's awesome. Yeah, that kind of stuff still goes on here in Manitou. It's pretty cool. You definitely yeah. have a lot of people you can call and drop of a hat if you need help or whatever. Yeah. Maybe that is one of those silver linings from your unfortunate event when you were 29 is now yeah. you're able to teach your children the value of work ethic and you're sure. able to provide jobs for the community. And like you said, it's helped keep those relationships with your Mantina friends alive. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's fun. You know, it's, it's actually pretty fun. We have our headaches here and there, but um, it's a pretty fun business. You know, and we're fortunate to have a really good staff. So the better your staff gets in this business, the less you have to do. Yeah. So I'm enjoying year 11 right now. We have such people who have been here for like eight years that frankly are a lot better at the job than I am. So <laughs> <laughs> pretty much let them, let them do what they they want. Yeah, you know, it just comes down to people. If you get the right people in a business, then the business is a big business. Yeah. You get the wrong people in it, it could be a pain in the ass, you know? So. <laughs> just comes down to surround yourself with people who kind of have the same goals and same spirit, I guess, the same heart. Well, you know, I always look for staff that have friends or, or family, you know, especially kids that they love. I mean, anyone committed to a family is usually a good worker. That's kind of what we found. So, but it's a, uh, it's good. Hopefully we can do it for another 10 years. Yeah, we hope so too. Yeah. If you can go back and give your younger self a piece of advice, what would it be? Well, that's a good one. You know, I would just say, tell myself to enjoy the ride more. I tended to be a little high strung, you know. I had a big you know, timed competition and off-season workouts, you know, on a Saturday morning at 7 a.m. I might not be able to sleep that night. You know, things like that. I could have enjoyed the process more. Not been quite so of tie along the way. Um, but overall, I don't have any regrets. I feel like I slowed down enough to spend a lot of time with people and friends. and um, I feel like all of those relationships have really you know, multiplied my life today. I'm still friends with a lot of those people. All my original friends in my 20s all have kids now and we're, we vacation together. It's, you know, it's, they're rich relationships. with people we've known for through three decades of your life, you know. That's, I think those type of threads in your life, if you can create those, I think it makes your relationship more meaningful, your marriage is more meaningful. If you have, you know, really good people in your life that have been there for a long time. Yeah. It seems to me to be the, the biggest sign of a successful life. A lot of people that love you, care about what you're doing, yeah. would help you in a second. You know, I think it's amazing that you found such great relationships and you realize the importance of those. And we can't thank you enough for 
coming on the episode and helping our listeners gain some wisdom from you so that they don't have to make some of those mistakes on their own. We wish you nothing but the best here at the restaurant. And thanks again for coming on. Appreciate it very much. Nice to meet you guys. We're open uh, Tuesdays through Sundays, 11 to 9 every day. So. Yep. Perfect. We're going to have to come down and have yeah. some tacos Happy and margaritas. Happy hours to You guys, you're eating on the house right now. you got time. Yeah. you got time? Crystal Park Cantina, Manitou Springs, Colorado. You don't have to go till noon or 2.